God bless you, everybody. Wonderful to praise the name of the Lord Jesus with you. He is worthy of it. We'll spend all eternity basking in his glory and praising his name. Only then it will be without fatigue and distraction, any hint of self-centeredness. It'll be heavenly to worship Almighty God with a pure motive. We're doing the best we can now, but boy, when we get to heaven, it'll be undistracted worship, and we'll need all eternity to sing the praises of Almighty God. We're going to talk even more about the Lord Jesus tonight. Just to refresh your memory, uh, he only has a little while left here on earth in the context in which we're studying. It's John's gospel. He's imparted himself uh, to his intimate followers. We call them disciples and later apostles. There'd been a dinner, quite a significant one with them. We refer to it as the Last Supper. It was a Passover meal. Uh, after that, he and the 11, one had departed already, the betrayer. The 11 were making their way down from the upper room. They were going downhill for a spell. Eventually, they would walk in an elevated way. They'll cross a valley called the Kidron Valley and make their way to the Mount of Olives, specifically to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Lord is redeeming his time with them now. What would you impart to people if you had only a few hours left? It's very instructive to see what the Lord taught them. And then in the course of teaching them, we saw last week as we began John chapter 17, rather seamlessly, the, moved, uh, the Lord moved from speaking to people to speaking about people in prayer to the Lord. And I mentioned to you, I think that's what it means when we're exhorted to pray without ceasing. It doesn't mean we must pray all the time. I think it's okay to sleep once in a while. Don't do it now if you don't mind. Wait until later. It's okay to sleep and to eat and to do those activities of daily living. But to pray unceasing, I think it means to be in such close communion with God that seamlessly we can just move into that communion and express ourselves to him. That's what the Lord did. And so he began last week, we saw the first five verses of chapter 17, to pray actually about himself. Now there's a transition, I think, in verse 6 and on. Now he's praying of the disciples. He had been speaking to them. Now he's speaking to the Father about them. Why? Why such an investment in these 11? It's rather extraordinary when you think about it because they were no different than you or I, they were, they were really quite ordinary. In fact, in some cases, less even than ordinary. They, they weren't very popular in the society. Folks, they smelled, a number of them. That's what happens when you're a fisherman. You smell. It's hard to get rid of that smell, and they did. If they entered the room, I don't know, I think people would just relocate their seats. I remember when I was uh, uh, in Louisiana, our church there, in Baton Rouge would have um, frequent crawfish boils. You know about these? And you have to go if you want to win the culture. So here comes this Jewish guy from Brooklyn, New York, figuring out how to eat crawfish. And they're quite good once, once you figure out how to get to the sliver of meat that's inside each of these things. Uh, but the thing is, I noticed after you go to a crawfish boil, you smell like crawfish for about two to two and a half years. And uh, there's nothing you can do. You have to, like, you have to immerse yourself 
in a bathtub filled with ammonia or Clorox for about three days straight in order to get rid of the smell. And what I noticed after the crawfish boil, you have to hang out with other people who have been there because you smell alike and you, can't, you, you sort of can't tell. And so uh, 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 that's who the Lord had invested in. Not only were they fishermen, uh, one I guess you can consider to be quite marginalized. He was a tax collector. That's an honorable, sort of honorable profession. I guess I should, and maybe it's not so honorable today. But it was quite dishonorable because it meant that this Jewish guy had some relationship with the Romans who uh, the Jews didn't want to be in the land at the time. Some would consider this tax collector to have gone over to the other side, so to speak. My point is they were intensely ordinary. And so you wonder why did the Lord have such an investment in their lives so that he would invest himself in them and then pray. This is his farewell prayer. Why? It's because the Lord intends to do a rather extraordinary work through intensely ordinary people just like you and I. And he was so confident about it that they would pull it off. The extraordinary work is that they would be the emissaries, think about it, of redemption. We sang about it. Whom the Son sets free shall be free indeed. And they're going to bring to people, Jew and Gentile alike, the message of freedom in the Savior, the Lord Jesus, who suffered and died for all people. Well, how could these rather ordinary, uneducated people, they didn't have great stock portfolios, not a one went to an Ivy League school. They were really blue-collar through and through, and yet the Lord knew once they received the Holy Spirit, they didn't really know about him all that much now, uh, they will be empowered to be his witnesses, and not only that, he's praying for them. You've got to know the son's prayer was heard by the father and will be answered. And I think we're evidence of the fact that his prayers for them were answered because the gospel message was not perpetuated, frankly, by the multitudes who came to have their bellies filled or their limbs healed. Those are valid needs, but they were, weren't really trained nor fit to make a commitment, the likes of which these will, in order to propagate the gospel. It's these who did, and so the Lord trained them up, invested in them, and now is praying for them because these ordinary ones are going to perform an extraordinary work. Okay, so here's what he prays. It's in verse 6 as we begin in John chapter 17. Look what he says. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Can you see the first phrase? I have manifested your name. What does it mean? Does it mean that the Lord revealed to them the secret name of God? which only a few have access to. It does not mean that. How do we know it? Well, the Jewish concept of name really had little to do with designation. Uh, it had much more to do with description of the one named. And so, for instance, we read about Moshe or Moses, meaning drawn forth because that was his experience. We read about Yeshua, Jesus, whose name means 
Savior. Isn't it interesting that Almighty God entrusted Joseph and Mary with extraordinary privileges regarding the only begotten Son of God, but the thing God didn't leave for them was the naming of the child. Matthew's gospel tells us, and his name shall be Jesus. In Hebrew, it's Yeshua, which comes from the root word meaning to save or Savior. And so that's just, that's not a name to designate the Savior. That's a name which described him. So the text here means when Jesus says, I manifested God's name, it means in effect he put on display the attributes of God which humankind would otherwise not know of. It means he revealed the otherwise unseen God. I've been working on memorizing this verse, John 1.18. We went over it a long time ago. It says, I'll see if I can remember it, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom, that means intimacy, bosom of the Father, he has explained him. It means he revealed him. It means he lifted God from his transcendence and distance and otherworldliness, and he brought him nigh. Emmanuel, Jesus, God, and flesh revealed the attributes of God. That's what the Lord is saying when he says, I manifested the name of God. Listen, if he didn't do that, even the best of us would be left at best, with speculation about whom God is. Every once in a while, when you witness to people about the reality of hell, they say, I don't believe God is like that. Well, where do they get that? I know it's a free country, and people are entitled to come to their own conclusions, but you're not entitled to distort the facts about God or anybody else. And I wonder how they come up with that notion, I don't believe God would do that. You see, it's just speculation. I think God is like this. How do you know that? Jesus said, no, no, I spent time. And perhaps the most uh, important contribution he made in his time here is to put on display the perfections of the otherwise unseen God so that we don't have to guess. You want to know who God is and what he's like? Look at Jesus. And that's what he's talking about here. Now, there's something else. Well, uh, uh, um, to embellish the point a little bit, I've been working on another passage of Scripture, really thinking about it. It's in Psalm 116. David, who wrote it, is in trouble. Listen to what he said. He He said, I found distress and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. Do you think David had a technical, esoteric, mysterious name of God that Uh, uncorked God's ears and gave David special access to him? No, that's not the God we serve. David means I'm calling upon the God in light of who he is, in light of who his attributes. How do I know this? Because later on in the same text, David spells out some of the attributes of God. He said he is righteous. He is compassionate. Our God is faithful. You see? So that's what it means. I was pastoring a church in Chicago a long time ago, and I prayed, and I think I closed the prayer with these words, thank you, Lord, for listening to us. I, I, I didn't do that to make a point. That's how I closed. At the end of the service, a very good-hearted lady with good intentions told me she's leaving the church. 
She said, I can't be in a church that doesn't pray in Jesus' name. On that particular occasion, I didn't use the words in Jesus' name. They're beautiful words. I'm not suggesting we don't do that. But this poor lady made kind of a magical formula out of it, meaning if you don't pronounce those words, you don't have his ear. No, no, no. To pray in Jesus' name means to pray in a light of the attributes, perfections of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Scripture, who would otherwise be hidden from our view, but who is made clearly known by God the Son. So Jesus said, I've manifested your name. Now, there's something else I find interesting about this phrase. I hope you do as well. You know, and I'm thinking, holy Toledo, we're not going too fast, are we? Um, only phrase one. Well, okay. Um, it's not the speed, it's the direction. So I think we're going in the right direction. So think about this. In Jewish thinking then and even now, God's name is so sacred you must not pronounce it. It kind of flows from the commandment about not using the Lord's name in vain because my people are so scrupulous about that. Um, they don't pronounce the divine name Yahweh frivolously. Um, we call that name, have you heard of this? The Tetragrammaton. Why? Because it's usually summed up in four consonants. In English, it would be Y-H-W-H. No vowels, just those consonants, four of them. So we call it the Tetragrammaton. In Jewish worship experiences, we do not pronounce that name of God because he is too holy for us ordinary beings to be that familiar with him. So here's what uh, we've come up with over the years. There's another name for God, Adonai, meaning Lord. You know about this? It's kind of... Uh, Weird, or shall I say, let's say interesting. Interesting is better than weird. So, so if you take the vowels in Adonai and combine it with the consonants in Yahweh, then you get another word, which in effect is no word at all. It's a made-up word. But it's made up with good intentions so that we do not accidentally pronounce God's name in a profane way. So when you take the consonants of Yahweh and combine it with the vowels of Adonai, you may be surprised to know you get Jehovah. Now this is very ironic because there's a whole faith group insisting uh, that Jehovah is, is God and Jesus is lesser than he is. The Watchtower Society, Jehovah's Witnesses, very sincere people, sincerely wrong people, but very, very sincere. So it's very interesting. They're choosing as the label for their organization a name which is, in effect, no name. Now, I don't want to hurt your feelings. I love the hymn, stayed upon Jehovah. Did I ruin it for you? <laughs> and I'm not one of these crazy people. I think we should still sing that song and all the rest. Uh, it's magnificent. It's quite beautiful. But, but in the interest of honesty, Jehovah is no word at all. You know what Jehovah means? Nothing. It's just the combinations of the consonants in the tetragrammaton with the vowels in Adonai. The sound is 
Jehovah. Isn't that interesting? Just a little insight. You can do with it what you want. Now, here's the point. Here's my point. I knew there was a point. Yeah, I forgot for a second. When Jesus said, I manifested your name, I think he's saying, you Jewish people are so scrupulous about not mentioning the name of God. There's a distance that's been erected between you and him. You find him holy, but unapproachably so. No, I brought him near. I came to display his name to such extent you can't pronounce it. Not only that, you can consider this God whose name you're afraid to pronounce, you can call him Abba, Father. You can call him Papa. You can call him Daddy. Jewish people didn't do that. Jewish people don't refer to the Father as Abba. They refer to their dads as Abba, but not their God. And Jesus says, yes, you can, because I came and manifested his name right in your midst. And so what the Lord Jesus is doing is removing the distance, the very false religious distance between us and Almighty God. And Jesus is saying, oh, no, he came near uh, through myself. Anyway, that's kind of what he did. And so the Lord Jesus is saying, I came to manifest his name, which means to display the character of God. And I take it from this, that's, that's our privilege as well. Once again, if you're wondering What's your purpose in life if you're a Christian, you're a believer? It's this. It's to put on display the attributes of God and the way you and the way we live out our lives. We're to, help, we're to make it easier for people <laughs> to see accurately and to believe on uh, the otherwise unseen God. In fact, I, I see that Paul understood this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. He said, to the Corinthians of all people, you are our letter written in our hearts, known, look at, and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ cared for by us, written, no, not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. We are, you and I, in effect, living letters read by a watching world in order to manifest the name of the otherwise unknowable and unseen God. This reminds me of that which really is very important to us here at Sagemont Church. We are to be, would you say this with me? We are to be living proof of a loving God to a watching world. I have some Methodist friends here with us tonight, and we're glad you're here, but you have to leave these trade secrets here. Do not take it to your Methodist church. I'm telling you that right now. You leave it right here where it belongs. Anyway, folks, that's our role. That's what the Lord did. It's what we are supposed to do. Now, verse 7. We're making progress. The Lord's speaking to the Father. Now, they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. Hmm. The world would persuade us that we should seek after and boast about self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and personal adequacy. Uh, but that flies in the face of what the Lord is praying here. They knew, Father, that everything, everything you've given me is from you. He claimed nothing. 
for himself. This flies in the face of this terrible attitude in the day which we're teaching our little kids, believe in yourself, you can be anything you want to be. No, you can't. No, you shouldn't. No. In fact, Paul again said this in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything is coming from ourselves. Here's what he said. But our adequacy is from God. And the Lord Jesus said, it's the second thing I did, Father. I manifested your name to them. But the second thing I did is to make sure they knew everything you've given to me is, in fact, from you. I didn't take credit for it at all. It had nothing to do with sheer force of will or my own sufficiency. I give God the glory. That's essentially what he's saying there. Now, verse 8, for the words which you gave me, I've given to them. They received them. And truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. Now, I debated whether to bring this up, but um, I, I'll do it. Tell me, tell me if later if I shouldn't, if I shouldn't have. <laughs> It'll be too late then, but I think some of you are aware of the fact that there's a, uh, an in-house discussion. Sometimes it gets, oh, heated, in the body of Christ, this is an in-house discussion between marvelous, lofty matters of um, divine election and human free will. You know about this discussion? It's an in-house. I love the discussion because I learned so much from hearing uh, from others whom I respect about this. What is troubling to me is the divide. An in-house matter is calling, uh, is causing. So I can't help but finding all over the scripture a uh, um, not a compromise on truth, but a mediating position, which folks on both sides uh, reject. I, I, I've I've shared this with members of both sides of the issue, and both have said, "No, you don't get it." And maybe they're right, but I'm doing the best I can. Uh, my position is. In Scripture, there is ample evidence in the matter of salvation of both divine election and human free will. And I'm perfectly comfortable with that. I don't know how they merge together. They surely don't in my finite mind, uh, but they do in the mind of Almighty God because he's infinite, and that's one of the reasons we worship him. He can harmonize things which seem unharmonizable to us. And so in the text before us, I have a feeling I'm going to hear from some of you later, but here we go. I, I like the attention. And so in verse 6, I think that's kind of a, an explanation or a hint at their salvation um, um, with regard to the election of God. Back in verse 6, the men you have given me out of the world. Folks, if that is not divine election, I don't know what he is. But now in verse 8, I think that explains their salvation in light of their faith. Look, they have believed that you sent me. So this is not a full-blown theology on the issue, but I, I find here again, verse 6, divine election, verse 8, human free will. I'm perfectly comfortable not know, knowing how they work together, but just accepting the fact that they do. Okay, verse 9. Let's quickly, not quickly enough, move past that. Verse 9, I ask on their behalf. I don't ask on behalf of the world, 
but of those whom you have given me, for they're yours. Does that imply that God does not care for the world? It indicates here he's praying for his disciples, but he's not praying for the world. No, it does not indicate God doesn't care for the world. Do you remember John 3, 16? For God so loved the world that he gave. All this means in the context is that what Jesus is praying only pertains to the disciples in this case. It does not apply to the unbelieving world. You'll see he's going to pray for their security and their unity and their, the joy of their salvation. Of course, those things don't apply to unbelievers. In fact, the Lord so loved the world, you know what he's doing? He's praying for these whom he will send back into the world. Why? To share with lost people in the world that if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. Now, verse 10, and all things the Lord is praying that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. So, so if, if you read this too fast, I think you'll miss it. If you slow down, I think you'll see both um, phrases uh, can only apply to one person. For instance, Everyone can say phrase one, all things that are mine are yours. Do you agree? Everyone here could pray that to Almighty God. All things that are mine are yours. What do you have that you've not received? Why, the very breath you're taking is a gift from God. You can't lay claim to any of that. So anyone here can say, oh God, everything uh, I have is from you. But the second phrase, I think, can only be uttered by the Lord Jesus. Everything, everyone can say, all things that are mine are God's, but only one can say, all things that are God's are mine. Who's the only one who could say that? Only one who is declaring equality with God. There are some who say Jesus never declared his divinity. Well, those are people who are reading a different Bible than I am. This is a statement of the Lord's divinity right here. You can't say all things that are God's are mine. Would you dare say that? Would you have the audacity to say that? No, 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 no. Only the Son of God could say all things that belong to the Father of God are also mine because he's very, very clearly declaring his equality with the Father. Now, verse 11, I'm no longer in the world. Interesting. He is. He hasn't been crucified, resurrected. He hasn't ascended back to the Father yet, but we spoke about this in a prior week. That is so certain of being accomplished, the Lord is speaking of a future event as if it's already taken place. I'm no longer in the world, says he, yet they, his followers, they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. He's going to die, and he's going to be resurrected from death, and then he'll ascend into heaven. But these for whom he is praying are here. They have no place to go, folks. They're stuck here for now. So are you and I. They are left, the Lord knows this, in a rather unholy world, and therefore he makes his petition on their behalf to a holy Father. I like the way the Lord referred to his father this way. And he prays specifically that they may be one. He prays for their unity. 
Much more can be said about this later on in the chapter, not tonight, on another occasion. For now, let me just say, he's not praying for their uniformity. Oh, no. Boy, were they diverse. Peter had one temperament. John had an entirely different one. He's not praying for their uniformity. He's praying for their unity. He's welcoming the differences amongst them and their diversity. He's really praying that they be one in heart and purpose. And he says in verse 12, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you've given me, and I, I guarded them. As a result, not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. And the Lord was guarding them. Now he prays that the Father would do the same. He's protecting them. And he didn't lose the one. Someone in the crowd says, oh, yes, you did. <clears throat> what happened to Judas? In anticipation of it, the Lord make sure this is written, everyone was secure and safe, but the son of perdition. Listen here, folks. For those of you who think you can lose your salvation, go ahead, if that's what you think. Um, it's a free country. And by the way, you could, if there's any way you could possibly uh, lose it in and of yourself. But if you have Jesus guarding you, <laughs> And asking the Father to, in his absence to do the same, I want to know at he, at how he will fail in guarding you on, on into eternity. But the son of perdition, perdition means destruction, kind of born for it. Of course, he's talking about Judas, the betrayer. And the Lord is saying, no, no, I didn't... I, the betrayal by Judas does not indicate that I failed. In fact, the betrayal by Judas indicates that the scripture is fulfilled. Can I show you a verse that proves that? It's Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my close friend, I think this is a reference to what happened between uh, the Lord Jesus and Judas by anticipation. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And when Judas did that very thing at Pesach, the Passover meal, it's not that the Lord failed. No, the scripture was being fulfilled. Now verse 13, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Remember, the Lord is not praying privately here. He spent lots of time alone with the Father, but this is in full hearing of the disciples. Think about this. They're hearing God the Son, their Messiah, their Redeemer. They're hearing the Son pray that on their behalf that his joy might be made full in them. He prayed for their security. He's prayed for their unity, and now he's praying they could hear it for their joy. He's praying this out loud. They heard him say, oh, Father, may, may they have joy. What's more, oh, Father, may, may my joy be made full in themselves. He doesn't pray for their happiness, does he? Prays for their joy. Joy is odd. It's a tricky thing. Happiness depends on what happens. You're happy when good things happen, and you're unhappy when bad things happen. But joy is mysterious. It's not like that. It's something that persists in spite of what happens. I think joy is confidence in God. 
you hurt, you suffer loss, you grieve, and yet something in you, no, someone in you, somehow, even through your tears, persuades you, but you're there. You haven't forsaken me. You're still sovereign. You're still good. It's joy. It's not an emotional experience. It's much deeper than that. Emotions come and go. They fluctuate. No, no, joy is something, it's much more persistent. But all that being said, I must admit this, the fullness of joy, which the Lord is speaking of, in my opinion, will not be experienced by all of us here. We have to wait for the fullness of joy to be ours. We have snippets of it, tastes of it, for sure here. But I think the full experience of fullness of joy awaits us. I'll tell you how I get this. See, I think it was the same with the Lord. Listen to this. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy, listen, set before him. Joy yet to come. Who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The cross was a painful experience, humiliating, excruciating, torturous experience. Yet for the joy set before him, he was able to endure it all. Now I think what happened to the Lord will happen to us. There was joy set before him. There is joy set before us. I guess I can say whatever it is you, I go through, the best is yet to come. You know what Paul said? I consider that the sufferings of this present day, look what he said are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. If what you're experiencing now, pain and so on, was to be your eternal situation, how could you go on? Well, you can go on this way. You can endure <laughs> because it's going to pass. And it's going to give way to fullness of joy, the likes of which you and I can't even conceive of yet. Now the Lord says in verse 14, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I've given them your word. Look, if you want to be of, of help to anyone, do the same. If you want to minister, to serve anyone, saved or unsaved, do this. Give them the word of God. That's what changes lives. Jesus, as I read scripture, constantly endorses it. Jesus endorses scripture. He's doing so here. I've given them your word. Now listen, if ever there was anyone who could speak on his own, it's the Lord Jesus, and yet he doesn't. He constantly makes recourse back to scripture. How much more you and I. God's word would bring them joy, and God's word would give them a punch in the stomach by the world. It's a contrast. That's what it says. You have to expect it. The word of God will bless you and give you joy, and the word of God will so distinguish you from worldly people, they'll punch you in the gut. Now try as you may to fit in. Eventually, your Christian value system is going to rub worldly people the wrong way, and they won't even go to Chick-fil-A anymore. <laughs> Is that the craziest thing you ever heard of in your life? Let's boycott Chick-fil-A. You know about this? Because Chick-fil-A made con 
makes contributions to wonderful groups like FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and groups like Fellowship of Christian Athletes represent a biblical stand when it comes to uh, human sexuality and gender matters and all the rest, and therefore says people so far out, you can't even, I don't know what planet they're from, therefore let's boycott Chick-fil-A. Look, at, I don't care how much you, someone who's been given the word of God and affected by it, try to fit in, at a certain time, at a certain point, know there's going to be a rub. And because of the word of God, which blesses you, sets you free and gives you joy, the world is going to give you a boot in the behind. You got to get used to it. That's just the way it is. In fact, the Lord says in verse 15, I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Depends on your translation. It could be translated evil one or evil. The point is Satan is the root of evil. So either translation makes the point. The Lord is leaving the world, and yet he leaves his followers here. You ever wonder why we're still here? Well, we're here for the good of the unsaved. How are they going to hear? People don't bring the gospel to them. But we're not only here for the good of the unbeliever, we're here for our own good. I'll tell you why it's good to still be here. It's getting so difficult to be here, we are yearning more for heaven, aren't you? Well, that's really good. I don't think we're going to, we will be less prone to regret all that we have left behind here. Good night, you can have it. That's one reason we're, and here's another reason why we're left here. The situation we find ourselves in the world is really, really enhancing our sense of dependence on God, and that will fare us well even in eternity. And there's another reason we're here, to be pruned. We read about that earlier in John's Gospel to be made even more ready for kingdom culture. So the Lord leaves us here, and, and therefore he says to the Father, I don't ask you to take them out of the world, just that you protect them from evil here. You know what, folks? Christianity was never meant to provide an escape for people from life. No, no, no. It's meant to equip people so as to live life more skillfully. So I want to tell you two errors that are possible errors we Christians can make. Some of us are so repulsed by worldly things and worldly people, we have managed to so um, isolate ourselves from the world, we have nothing to say. We have no influence on anybody anymore. We, you know, we're afraid of getting cooties from our next door unsaved neighbors, therefore don't hang out with them. That's kind of an extreme, you see what I mean? But here's the other extreme. One is to be so detached from the world, you can't influence it. The second one is to be so enmeshed in the world, we can't distinguish you from it. That's happening with a lot of Christians today. We speak like them, we dress like them, we drink like them, we go to the same stupid movies they do, we play the same goofball video games they do. Man, we just look, we don't look like salt and like, we just fit in. I think what's called for is balance because we're in the world and are supposed to influence it, but we're not of the world. Look, that's what it says, verse 16. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And so the Lord prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify. Set them apart for your glory is what the Lord prays. How does that happen? You don't get sanctified as some zealous religious people think you do by punishing the body. No, 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 no. You do not get sanctified by isolating yourself somewhere away from people. 
You get sanctified. Here's the vehicle of sanctification. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. In other words, without divine revelation, there is no human sanctification. Do you want to be a sanctified disciple of Jesus Christ? Then immerse yourself in the word of God. Listen to it preached. Read it. Study it. Memorize it. Whatever it takes, immerse yourself in the word of God. It's a sanctifying agent. As you sent them into the world, verse 18, I've also sent them into the world. Boom! If that isn't a missionary mandate, I don't know what is. As with me, says the Lord, so with you. Father, you sent me into the world. Now I send them into the world. Everyone here is a missionary for Christ. Not of the world, but sent to it. Verse 19, our last verse for tonight. For their sakes I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. What does this mean? Jesus says, for their sakes I sanctify myself. But wait, I thought he was sinless and perfect. What do you mean sanctify? Don't misunderstand the word. He is sinless and perfect. It means this. There came a time when I set myself apart for a specific purpose to glorify God. And it laid the foundation for their sanctification. What is he referring to? I think the cross. The Lord Jesus set himself apart as the only one, the only qualified one, who could die on the cross as a substitute for our sin. Only the God-man, Son of God, Son of Man, only the sinless one could be set apart for that redemptive purpose. Nobody else qualifies. Nobody else satisfies the prerequisites. Only the perfect sinless one. And I think he's saying, for their sakes and yours and mine, I set myself apart. I took to the cross. That's the basis of their sanctification. Because of what I've done in saving them, now they can be sanctified progressively over time. So here's the point, folks. If you're trying to clean up your act, if you're trying to be good enough uh, so as to stand one day rightly before Almighty God, if you're trying to do that, but you're bypassing the sanctifying work of Jesus, lots of luck, Charlie Brown. It's not going to happen. You can't do it. And so I commend to you the sanctifying work of the Lord Jesus. He set himself apart to suffer and die for your sins and mine. And upon accepting him as personal Savior who provided atonement for our horrific personal sin, that begins the process whereby we too can be set apart unto God and for his glory. Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Have you said, oh, Lord Jesus, I have sinned. I'm apart from you. You're holy. I'm not. I realize you set yourself apart to be my substitute on the cross. Please come into my life. Forgive me. Take up your abode right in me. Do an extraordinary work in me, an ordinary person, just like you did in these in John chapter 17, and send me out on a mission as well. Send me out to the world, to people just like I once was, to tell them about freedom and forgiveness in Jesus Christ as well. If you would like to talk more about that most important decision, even before you leave tonight, we'll meet with you for as long as you want 
in the Connection Center, which is a room right behind this one in which we're meeting. All you have to do is go out either aisle and turn inside. And there will be people waiting there to speak with you and even to pray for you. Don't leave this place. Don't leave Jesus behind. Jesus came near to manifest the otherwise unreachable, unapproachably holy, unseen God. Jesus came near so as to tell you, you can call upon his name, not as an enemy, but as a son or a daughter. But you have to get to him by first accepting my sanctifying work. I and only I could die for you willingly, sufficiently, and completely on the cross for your sins. You can try to reform. You can try to clean up your act. You can read as many self-help books as you want, but it cannot change your nature. Only I can do that. I must change you from the inside. Otherwise, you're just a veneer of good morals and ethics, but on the inside, you're dark. You're enmeshed in your sin. I can set you free, says the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, oh God, I pray. In the power of your Holy Spirit, for you alone possess this kind of power, would you persuade people here who need to be of their sin and of the fact that you came to save them from its presence and power and penalty? And would you persuade them of the means by which they could be righteous in right standing with you? And that is by benefiting from your merits. Put on our account. Lord Jesus, we can't thank you enough for what you've done in setting yourself apart in order to die an excruciating death on our behalf. Of course, we're so thrilled that death didn't have its last word. You rose up from death and are willing to save us from spiritual death and give us new resurrection life as well. And therefore, I pray not one person here would miss out on this grand and glorious free gift of salvation. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.